0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them.
1: Hi, this is Kurt Repinchek, your host at National Parks Traveler. We spent much of the past week focusing on year in review stories, such as our top podcasts, great photo tips from Rebecca Latson, and a roundup of our Exploring the Park stories from 2019 but we also released our first annual Threatened and Endangered Parks Package of stories that point to the units of the National Park System that are facing some incredible threats to the very essence of why they were added to the National Park System. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. This week, we close out the year with a look back at the top stories from around the National Park System. Joining us to discuss those stories is Teresa Pirno, President and CEO of the National Parks Conservation Association.
0: Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists! Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org.
1: The past year brought many news making events to the National Park System. It started, of course, with the partial government shutdown that created more than a few problems for the park system. We had the continued lack of a Senate-confirmed director of the National Park Service, hurricanes inflicted damage on coastal parks, and the construction of a border wall in Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument that possibly destroyed some archaeological sites there. To help us look back on 2019 in the National Parks, we're joined by Teresa Perno, President and CEO of the National Parks Conservation Association. Welcome to The Traveler, Teresa.
2: Well, thank you, Kurt, and it's a pleasure to be here. And oh my gosh, just in your introduction, it's bringing back flashbacks for sure
1: of a tough year. It has been a tough year. I mean, there has been some, some good news coming out of the parks as well, but Uh, Just starting at um, January of 2019, um, the partial government shutdown and uh, the effort by the administration to keep the parks operating with skeleton uh, stabs on the ground. um, We saw some damage in the parks.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, I guess as you certainly were aware, I mean, it's the longest partial shutdown in U.S. history. And, of course, uh, we had Interior Secretary David Bernhardt basically abandon um, the obligation of really protecting the national parks by keeping parks open with only skeleton crews and, and then ultimately draining the park fee money accounts um, to try to keep those gates open. And of course we saw some really significant damage um, in places like Joshua tree where Joshua trees were actually cut down, additional roads were created Mm -hmm. um, and just huge, um, just facilities that couldn't handle it. Um, and the people came, and unfortunately, uh, it's not an example that we want to ever see happen again, um, but it could. I mean, they have not committed to not doing the same thing if the government shuts down, so it's it's really a serious issue.
1: You know, in addition to the Joshua Tree situation down at Big Bend National Park, we saw vehicles going uh, around barriers, you know, driving off into the desert to get around the barrier. Um, at Sequoia National Park, um, the restrooms were Just filthy. The the garbage pans were overflowing. The garbage cans were overflowing. Uh, There was a situation with wildlife, and just all the wrong things that we want to happen to the national parks.
2: Uh, Absolutely, and and of course, we um, filed a complaint, and the Government Accountability Office agreed with us, and uh, so did members of Congress. That Interior um, really was breaking the law um, and misusing funds, and of course even as volunteers tried to help and i know park service staff um were just the morale was just unbelievable given you know to see the parks they love so much and protect uh so
1: damaged and neglected so
2: hard all the way around as well as of course a huge loss in revenue as well
1: yeah yeah you mentioned the 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 misuse of funds um of course that was the, the federal lands recreation enhancement Act Fund that um, the money is supposed to go to enhancing the visitor experience, not um, maintaining the national parks. We've had some um, followers of the Traveler say, hey, what's the big deal? Um, They came back and and Congress agreed to, you know, replenish that fund. Is there a big deal, so to speak, with um, raiding the federal lands?
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. Because, I mean, there were actually projects and they, as you know, the parks have a long list of needs and efforts that they need to do in order to really have the visitor experience one that um, they would expect. And, you know, when you take away those funds and that ability for them to have that, a little bit of flexibility and ability to, to do those important um, projects, it has an impact, impact on Visitor Center, but an impact on the overall morale and the ability for park managers to really manage the parks properly.
1: You know, along that lines, um, the, the Congress um, uh, adopted a, a budget for fiscal 21 that um, carried a a 3% increase for the National Park Service operations. At the same time, we're seeing parks still struggling with not enough funding with reduced staff. National parks friends groups are being asked to to pay for, for bone and muscles, I like to call it, as opposed to the frosting on top of the cake or to really enhance the, the park experience. Can, can the Park Service get by with such small percentage increases from year to year?
2: Uh, and the answer is no, they can't. Um, I mean, they, you know, it, when you look at the increase of visitation that they've seen, you know, a 14% increase in visitation during the same period where they've had a 14% reduction in staff. So, you know, visitors are going to continue to notice uh, not only facilities and and the maintenance uh, a challenge, but also, you know, fewer park rangers. Uh, So you don't have the kind of experience that you once had in a park, uh, which is so critical for families and especially young uh, campers and people that are just experiencing parks uh, in their youth and, and really... Those are things they're not going to be able to um, get back. And so when you look at the overall situation the parks are in, while we continue to see, and we're doing better in some cases than other um, agencies, but the reality is with the increase in popularity, visitation and needs, and the continual um, decline of the operations funding, it's just a, a perfect storm, really. So I, know. I think it's, it's going
1: to be tough. And that, of course, is on top of the ongoing maintenance backlog. And um, in in the coming weeks, we might we might hear what the the new number is. But you know, roughly 12 billion dollars of of backlog, and of course, half of that is is roads related. But um, Congress, it seems, has has struggled to to get this legislation, the Restore Our Parks Act, the support it needs in, in passage. And I know NPCA has been a big uh, supporter of that legislation. What, what does your crystal ball say?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, th- this is one of the few places where we really see bipartisan support. I mean, just in the House, there were about 330 uh, co-sponsors uh, as well. In the Senate, 47 uh, co-sponsors. So you have, you know, this incredible um, support by about 70% of Congress that supports the legislation. And you have tremendous support from the average American Uh, And the administration says they're also supportive, but yet we can't get it to the floor yet. So we really need uh, encouragement from the public and and push to get this Restore Our Parks Act um, voted and passed uh, because it will have a huge impact. I mean, you know, over five years, it'll fund about six and a half billion dollars of the backlog needs, which are really critical so that would go a long way in helping uh, with many of these repairs. Um, and every park has issues, whether it's with roads or buildings or visitor centers uh, that mm-hmm. are really seriously needed repairs. So I think this is one that uh, if they can get through this uh, this next Congress, uh, this will make a huge difference. And, and we need everybody helping to encourage their members to support it.
0: Sure.
1: Now, this might be apples and oranges, um... But if there's so much support in Congress for the Restore Our Parks Act, why doesn't Congress approve a larger budget for the Park Service?
2: Well, as you know, um, just the way the budget operates, um, in order for the parks to get more, somebody else has to get less. And, uh, you know, it's a continuing, diminishing pot of dollars, and the needs are continuing to increase. And so... That's where you need to look at new ways of providing funds uh, and to build that pot up. And, of course, you know, there's a lot of things that haven't even been considered in many, many years. Um, Half of the backlog dollars are transportation needs. Mm-hmm. And so there's an opportunity, but the you know the gas tax hasn't been raised since the mid '90s, um, you know, and you know we looked at different kinds of scenarios years ago where an additional penny, the difference that would make, uh, to be able to meet all of these transportation needs. Um, but there's been no effort to really look at ways to be able to improve um, the overall funding uh, for the for the needs, whether it's environmental needs or the, the land needs and, you know, BLM and all the various different land agencies. And, of course, the Park Service, because it sees so many vid- visitors and is so critically important um, to all Americans, it, it really is the one that you've got to be able to step up and you've got to be able to protect this incredible resource, or it could be lost. And so... You know, this is where the energy and the will and the excitement seems to be there, but at the end of the day, they get back to the dollars and cents and they say, well, we just don't have it. And we continue to see these very minimal increases and uh, not really being able to come close to meeting what the needs are.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, looking back at 2019, um, we also saw the continued impacts of climate change on the national parks. And whether you look at the Alaska, um, park properties and, and what's happening up there with uh, the permafrost melting um, or, the, or the seabirds dying from lack of food or whatnot, or you go to the East Coast and Cape Lookout National Seashore and, and Cape Hatteras were hammered back in uh, September by, by Hurricane Dorian. That's got to be a concern going forward as well because it's kind of a wild card that the, the park managers are dealt with. Will they be hit by a uh, another potent hurricane or, or you know, what impacts will climate change bring to their landscapes that they have to deal with?
2: No, you're absolutely right. And as bad as the funding picture is, there really is no bigger threat to the future of the national parks than climate change. And as you suggested, it's already destroying so many of our treasures, uh, our natural history and culture and when you look at sea level rise and you look at 10% of the shoreline was within the national park system of the United States and look at the number of marine parks that are threatened, uh, you know, places like Cape Hatteras with the erosion that's taking place, uh, the wildfires that's happening in places like Rocky Mountain National Park uh, and the greater west, I mean, it's just incredible. And just recently, we supported introduction of legislation called the American Public Lands and Waters Climate Solution Act of 2019. I know that's a mouthful mm. from the House Natural Resource Committee, which is looking at things like science-based guidance for land managers to use. Um,
1: what a concept. The National
2: Park Service. Yeah. <laughs> Putting emission targets as a priority above leasing and really kind of updating the leasing cost So that the industry is really paying their fair share and when they look at developing fossil fuels and public lands that are really we are all owners of those lands so uh, and you know what's happening now is just the opposite so uh, you know it's we have to and there are things we can do and that we need to be doing now and instead we're, we're actually taking actions in energy development and things that are taking us further
1: back. Well, and and that's a good point, and that's another um, big story that um, continued in 2019. I mean, we've seen active energy exploration in Big Cypress National Preserve that is, you know, damaging the park's landscape and possibly its wildlife. And you go out to North Dakota and Theodore Roosevelt National Park, I mean, if this isn't an irony, I don't know what is, Um, our most conservation-oriented president, and the national park named after him, and that park is ringed by energy development, active energy development, and it's facing the prospect of an oil refinery on its doorstep.
2: And it's just outrageous. Um, I mean, you're looking now at more than 19 million acres of public land that has been offered for oil and gas leasing just since this administration took office. I mean, that is just staggering. And and while they're doing this, they've really made it much more difficult for the public and and really key stakeholders to have a voice in the decisions. And they eliminated different vital kind of environmental protections. Um, And there's really, um, I mean, without really immediate action, parks are going to suffer for a long time um, from these kinds of uh, leases that are being put in place now. And more than about 45 of over 100 actions that the administration has done um, threatening the park and public lands and is basically benefiting the extractive industries, oil and gas development in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, you know, and we went through a process with the Obama administration where we looked at master leasing plans, if you recall, where we, we were able to come up with, these are places that are off limits and these are areas where, For leasing oil and gas and other extraction industry, they would be okay, and and there was an agreement and there was a plan put in place. And the very first thing that they did when he came into office was kind of throw that out and open it up. And now they're going after places that have impacts on whether it's Grand Teton or Big Cypress or Theodore Roosevelt, and places that we never saw um, impacts. I mean, right up to the borders of the national parks and even within the national parks uh, for leasing. So it's it, it's, it's just completely turned, and it's a very extremist situation we're facing now.
1: We've been talking with Teresa Pierno, the president and CEO of the National Parks Conservation Association, looking back at 2019, uh, the year of news in the national park system. We're going to take a short break,
0: and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year if you enjoy travelers content please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org washington state is graced with three spectacular national parks each different and special in their own unique ways as the official non-profit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center. All set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com.
1: You know, Teresa, um, another issue that has cropped up, it, it's been there all year long, but it seemed to gain attention late in the year was the situation with invasive species in the national park system. Specifically, um, there was a paper in December on um, invasive animal species and, and how that invasion is really striking at the integrity of the national park system. Um, perhaps the most glaring example is in Everglades National Park where um, the Burmese python is the, the poster child, so to speak, and it, it's wiping out native mammal um, populations, raccoons, opossums, um, et cetera. I- is that um, a problem that has, that has flown under the radar that really needs to get more attention and, and get Congress to help the Park Service um, provide funding to address this problem?
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's a huge problem. And it is also, in many cases, connected with climate change. Um, mm-hmm. The issue with the Everglades and the Python, not so much. Um, but certainly, uh, many other issues related to some of the invasives and the impacts that are happening, and diseases that are hitting uh, the forest, and the, you know some of the impacts related to the woolly adelgid is having on the it. ancient hemlock yeah, having on the ancient hemlock tree populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have things like the feral pigs in the Smokies and whole host of issues um, that are happening in the great lakes um, as well their ecosystems are seeing tremendous uh, invasive asian carp and uh, you know impacts um, related to to different water species so you know i think that the reality is um, with changes in climate changes in some of the chemistry and the ecosystem changes the intensifying wildfires are um, allowing for invasives many times to come in because those fires are so much hotter and they just destroy everything. So the normal um, fire that um, really was very healthy for forest is no longer the case in many of these um, areas. So it's it's a it's a huge issue um, and we're you know we're just so um, threatened in so many areas. But this is an area that definitely needs more attention, more resources. In Many cases they have. Uh, ways in which they can address it, but it takes additional dollars, and they don't have the resources to
1: be able to do it. You know, another um, issue with the park uh, system, the park services past year, is um, you you hate to talk about politics, but you know, you can't ignore politics either. We had the e-bike rule change in late August that Interior Secretary David Bernhardt he seemed to put the card in front of the horse um, by basically ignoring the usual rulemaking process and seeking public comment first, not after the fact.
2: Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and, it, and unfortunately, it's it's it continues to really ignore the the long standing protections, particularly for backcountry areas. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can just imagine the difference it would make and the impact it would have for visitors and hikers uh, to all of a sudden have motorized vehicles uh, that are just going to impact the wildlife and could trample plants and, you know, really cause some significant uh, immediate damage. And so, without again the adequate review and the acknowledgement and really looking at the research on what the potential impacts could do, uh, to move forward with this kind of policy and never opening it up for public comment is just outrageous.
1: Or even open it up for public comment after the fact, because what's a park going to do if they get all this negative comment and uh, opposed to, you know, whether it's e-bikes or or some other um, policy change? I mean, can the park service reverse itself or are the political currents too strong that um, that's not going to happen?
2: And, and this is not, unfortunately, in the environment we're in, not unusual that we're seeing policies and these decisions made, you know, really behind closed doors with no public involvement. And um, without a, you know, a permanent director of the Park Service, uh, without the ability uh, for staff to feel like they can speak out without retribution, uh, it's creating an environment that's making it uh, very challenging.
1: You know, and, and as you mentioned, um, there hasn't been a Senate-confirmed director of the Park Service since President Trump took office. Um, part of that um, kind of goes back on the Senate because they didn't confirm David Vella when he first came up for uh, confirmation. Um, at the same time, he hasn't been um, renominated to the best of my knowledge. And you look out across the park system, and there are regional offices that are still operating with acting positions some would say, well, what's the big deal there? I mean, David Vella is a seasoned career National Park Service employee a manager. He knows what he's doing. Um, we've got acting regional directors who, again, are, are career employees and they know what they're doing. So, is it a big issue whether there's a confirmed director of the Park Service or a deputy director exercising the authority of or a, an acting regional director? Oh,
2: absolutely. And and as you've seen, I mean, we've had this continual rotation. Uh, Of acting directors. So uh, you don't have the kind of stability. You also, you know, if you think about somebody that's been confirmed by the Senate and has gone through the process, their ability to be able to work with Congress on both sides of the aisle and to be able to help to be really that strong voice advocating for the Park Service needs, uh, you know, that gets lost. And so basically, they put people in positions to ultimately act as rubber stamps for whatever policy decisions the leadership wants to make and and that's where we are right now. And so that's a a, you know, a dangerous place to be. You know, we've seen past directors at times really push back and challenge and have to speak out. And, you know, that's just not the position that an acting director because they can easily just replace them with another acting director. (laughs) This Mm -hmm. isn't somebody again who's really confirmed and and somebody that has the support and uh, um, you know, of, of the leadership and of Congress, so it's it's a problem.
1: Did, did we see that kind of scenario play out in the Intermountain uh, region earlier this year when the uh, acting regional director told the um, parks in Utah that uh, you will allow ATVs, if they are registered in the state of Utah, to, to drive into the parks?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I have to say, you know, without the kind of leadership at the top— that really supports the superintendents and listens to when they are raising these concerns and, and red flags, uh, you know, you'll see more retirements, you'll see the kinds of morale issues uh, that I believe we're seeing across the service. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so disrespectful and, and so counterintuitive to especially a group of people that are so committed and have com- been committed for so long um, to protecting these treasures. And and being treated the way they've been treated today—it's
1: really just unconscionable. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned morale issues, and um, towards the end of December, the um, annual Best Places to Work in Federal Government survey came out, and overall, the the Park Service continues to remain mired near the bottom of 420 agencies um, that were tallied in the report. And um, the lower quartile of, of all government agencies, it's it's just uh, shocking to see that kind of result,
2: right? And especially right for people that take on these roles and these jobs um, because they care so much about these places. And so it's not because they lack the passion; it's because they're not being supported. They lack the resources. They're having to work under incredible political pressures. Uh, it's it comes out in the survey results. And so you, you see this and you just say, you know, how can we expect um, more, right, from our public servants when we're not willing to really support what they need and what they're clearly telling us that we need and we know better. So it's, um, you know, it's just a really um, sad state of affairs. But there's opportunities, you know, there's opportunities to turn some of the support and funding around with the Restore Our Parks Funding Act, and there's the ability for them to step up and really support with bringing on a director of the Park Service and mm-hmm. you know, getting them confirmed and, and really looking at filling those positions and providing the kind of operating support. I mean, there's there's opportunities, um, and unfortunately they continue to, to go and dig deeper <laughs> in that hole and, and that disappointment that I know this Park Service is facing and, and we're all facing that love our national parks.
1: Yeah, yeah overcrowding you know on on one hand it's very heartening to see so many visitors coming to the national parks to appreciate their their wonders and their beauty and the history and culture that they preserve and interpret and yet we're seeing um, some pretty serious overcrowding issues and it's probably not spread across the national park system but certainly you know zion national park arches Uh, Yellowstone at times, Yosemite, Acadia National Park, Rocky Mountain. You can just kind of keep going and going and going. Um, This year we did see um, Acadia National Park managed to get its um, traffic management plan approved, and and that's designed to um, control traffic and reduce congestion on the Park Loop Road and at Cadillac Mountain, of course. And yet um, Zion National Park, you know, I haven't heard anything positive um, in terms of movement of their efforts to come up with a, a management um, visitor management plan, and they're seeing resource impacts. They've got 13 miles of social trails in uh, Zion Canyon. Um, Arches National Park, they thought they had a solution, and the Interior Department said, uh, we're not going to go down that reservation road with you guys. And so the um, Utah Highway Patrol will continue to um, close the entrance to arches on those busy holiday weekends when traffic backs up onto the U.S. Highway 191. What what can we do about the overcrowding issue?
2: Yeah, I mean, Restore Our Parks Act would be one major step forward and get really serious about making smart and substantial investments in our parks and resources uh, so that visitors can keep coming for generations. Because I think, you know, the, there's several things we can do as well is is highlighting those parks that are not as popular, but Mm -hmm. are just as fabulous. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Utah did such a great job with their campaign and highlighting, you know, their parks almost to the point where they've marketed those so strongly, where there's so many other parks that haven't been marketed, but yet are actually incredible finds. So I think that that would be certainly one way is really educating the public more and really, having a campaign that does that. But also, you know, every park, as you know, is really unique. And so what will work for Acadia might not work for Arches. And and so parks really have to have the opportunity to develop their own plans in a case-by-case situation. And they need the support of leadership. Once they develop really, you know, good plans, uh, they need to be able to test it out and uh, move forward. Because, you know, otherwise visitors will be disappointed Going to these places and then being locked out or experiencing huge waits to get into the national parks, which they're experiencing in some of them today.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, and then also with all of the ability for us to use electronic technology and things in ways, um, there are certainly ways to be able to improve the whole system and, and look at you know, reservations and look at ways to, um, to move traffic and, and do it in a way uh, that enhances the visitor experience. Mm-hmm. And also alerts people to when not to come, maybe come, you know, try to try to come another time of the year or a different week that might have some lighter visitation.
1: Yeah, part of the problem with that, of course, is uh, the seasonal employees and and when um, parks can bring on their seasonal workforce. And I know um, up at Glacier National Park, uh, Superintendent Jeff Mao has. Um, voiced to me the concern um, with climate change. You know, some people are showing up earlier in the spring before they can get their seasonal workforce on the ground there. And so if you're stretching out either earlier in the spring or later in the fall, it really kind of hamstrings some of these parks that that are limited as to when they can bring in their seasonal workforce.
2: I mean, that's absolutely right. And and that's where you need to have resources and you need to look at a plan that um, accounts for that. Mm -hmm. and has a way to be able to resolve that opportunity so they they can bring them in sooner. Because more and more the shoulder seasons are becoming more popular because of problems they're seeing during the high season. And so um, it's a problem that a lot of parks are experiencing.
1: You know, going back to the overcrowding situation, um, I want to look at Arches National Park. Um, It has one entrance, main entrance road to it um, there just north of Moab. And... The park superintendent, Kate Cannon, um, who unfortunately is retiring at end of this year, she was um, uh, um, looking at a, a reservation-type plan that um, people could guarantee, you know, we can show up on next day and we'll be able to get into the park. And um, Interior pushed back and said, no, we, we don't think that's the best idea. What concerns me is that the, the Utah governor has uh, suggested putting in a secondary entrance road to the park. And I just wonder, is that in the best interest of Arches specifically and the park system as a whole? Because, well, they did it at Arches so we can put another entrance in at this park or that park.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's typically not the best solution because not only does it have huge impacts on the resource, but so you might um, move people into the park a little faster and be able to help alleviate some of the weight. But then once they're in the park, uh, again, you only have so many pull-offs. Uh, you know, everybody wants to go see the Gentle arch or the, you know, the various um, you know, elements in the park that are really popular. And so now you've got, you know, even more people at those sites. So you might be just moving the problem further into the park mm-hmm. rather than really alleviating the problem, plus having an impact on the resource. So, you know, those kinds of solutions really would take tremendous study and, and really looking at what the overall benefit and impact would be.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. What what does uh, MPCA think about a reservation system for the parks? I mean, we've got reservations for for lodging. We've got reservations for going out to dinner. Um, You want to go to a movie theater. They only have so many seats. Does does it make sense for the parks to institute a reservation system at those that uh, struggle with uh, high numbers of visitors?
2: I mean, I think... Certainly again, we don't have an overall policy that says absolutely not, no reservation system. I think again, it, it, it needs to be part of a really strategic plan and where it makes sense. And you could have you know, limited reservations. You could have, you, there's different ways to do it that could be beneficial for the visitor experience and give people more predictability. So you know, I think it's something again that you know, looking at the overall plan and looking at the individual parks uh, it might be the best thing to do for certain parks, uh, at least on a limited basis, you know, mm-hmm. But and still allow for, you know, people to that are willing and want to wait in line and to be able to, to go the other way. But but I think it's, it's individual case by case. Again, it's not a uniformed reservation system that's going to work.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. Um, It's a a park that in the 21st century um, has seen quite a bit of uh, heartbreak and and controversy. And the heartbreak, of course, uh, a law enforcement ranger was was killed back in the early 2000s. Um, They shut down roughly 95% of the park because it was deemed unsafe for um, visitors. In 2014, the park was reopened. Uh, There had been great work by the Park Service along with the Border Patrol to make it safer for visitors. Um, I was down there, had a wonderful time, didn't see any um, any threats. Now we have a border wall going up. Um, an incredible impact to the park there.
2: Yeah, I, I was just there last year. Um, in fact, we brought some of our volunteers and our board. Uh, I mean, the damage is just unbelievable. And of course, now with the approving of the fiscal year 2020, spending bills, it allows for the destruction of the monument uh, and continuing bulldozers to go through and basically um, plow down the iconic Sequoia cacti and impact the fragile wildlife. I mean, we knew this kind of damage was possible, but now witnessing it, um, mm-hmm. it's just unbelievable. And, you know, many people, they say, well, you know, it's, what's the big deal and its impact? And, but if you think about the wildlife species, that are going to be impacted, and, and Oregon Pipe is a place of bobcats and coyotes and desert tortoises, mountain lions, and on and on. And they roam freely in this landscape, and they need to. They need to be able to search for food and water and mates, and and the disruption of a wall can already, you know, take an endangered species um, to the very brink and totally destroy this park and the wildlife um, really forever. And so. Um, to continue with really what's unnecessary new walls when there's so many other options for um, meeting their needs and what they um, want to do, it just seems just just outrageous. So, And it's really an attack on our national parks until yeah. so we continue to see uh, this really national treasure destroyed. It's outrageous.
1: And it's kind of mind-boggling in that, you know, the, the Border Patrol working with the Park Service had solutions to illegal border crossings and they, they seem to have things under control.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, but that doesn't seem to matter, right? (laughs) I mean, that's just being what's actually happening on the ground is, it's not what's moving this wall forward. And that's just so sad to see the politics play out and have the impact it's having on such a beautiful park.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, staying in the Southwest Grand Canyon national park, continues to, to um, confront issues, whether it's uranium mining or, I guess, the most recent is uh, proposals to put dams on the little Colorado River upstream of the National Park and the impacts that could have on the um, Grand Canyon and the Inner Gorge.
2: Yeah, no, it's a terrible idea, absolutely terrible idea. And, of course, you know, there have been so many terrible ideas from uranium mining and uh, and, of course, the You continue to see the flow of the Colorado River and the impacts of all of the uses um, and impacts that have been, you know, continuing to reduce um, the flow. And the challenges in that region are just uh, enormous. Mm -hmm. We're continuing to see um, threats, uh, again, from extraction industry. And so it's it's a huge, huge challenge.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that uh, NPCA just uh, is coming to the end of its centennial year. Um, that's got to be an incredible um, satisfaction to see an organization that's advocated for the parks um, past the century mark.
2: Yes. Now, and what a year we've had. I mean, it's been great to see um, so many of our volunteers and people joining us in celebrations across the country, uh, getting out into the parks, and we've hosted all kinds of events and cleanups and plantings and activities across the country. And, you know, 100 years is is a big deal. And when you look at the history of the National Parks Conservation Association and the parks that have been created, uh, due in part to some of the work that we've done, and then look at the parks that have been protected. You know, we talk about all of these things impacting parks, but there's a whole lot of things that aren't there and aren't impacting parks because of the work that we've done, whether it's the Eagle Mountain Landfill at the border of Joshua Tree um, would have been the largest landfill in the country. Uh, so to be able to you know stop something like that, even though it took two decades and a lot of legal action, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's the kind of thing we can look to really with pride and then see the additional support over the years that we have been able to get um, for our national parks. But um, there's a lot more to do in these next 100, and in order to look back 200 years, um, we're going to have to confront the challenges of climate change and funding and the impact to uh, the resources that are continuing to be threatened uh, with so uh, so many of our endangered species in our national parks. Uh, And with continuing declines that we're seeing in areas with water quality and impacts of erosion and the kinds of things that they're experiencing, it's going to require um, tremendous resources and support from the public, uh, demanding, really, from the public to move policymakers uh, to do the right thing. But this year for NPCA, it was about celebration and celebrating what has been done and celebrating these great treasures.
1: Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, your workload never diminishes. Um, One thing we didn't talk about in in depth was uh, outside uh, impacts that are um, coming to the park's doorstep, and and you've got the Appalachian National Scenic Trail and the the pipelines that uh, energy companies want to blaze across the the trail corridor, Um, and of course, uh, down at uh, Cumberland Island National Seashore, the prospect of having rockets launched over the, the National Seashore.
2: And then we have the Navy jets <laughs> that are flying over Olympic and noise issues. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, the, the overall energy development that's happening um, across the country is uh, having huge impacts in so many parks mm-hmm. uh, that are being impacted. So there's, there's really never a shortage of uh, challenges and, and battles. And in fact, just in the last year or so, we've had probably 30, 35 active uh, legal actions and suits that we've been involved with or leading uh, across the country as well as you know pushing for various policy changes Uh, and it's it's only going to continue unfortunately because we don't see this um, slowing down in any way Uh, but it's really critical to get the public engaged and appreciate certainly people listening to uh, your um, podcast and, and you know reading information about the parks it's critical that they contact their members of Congress, and and speak up and and really uh, fight for these parks because they need more and more advocates.
1: Yeah, yeah. With the end of the year here and the new year right around the corner, what would you like to see in 2020 for the National Park System and the National Park Service?
2: Well, of course, we'd love to see a leader of the Park Service, a director appointed. We'd also um, love to see the Restore Our Parks uh, Act passed, So that that $6.5 billion can really begin to fund the parks. And then the parks able to take a strong, as well as our nation, uh, approach to climate change and really start to address the issues and put the things in place that need to be done in order to really start to slow, um, because, you know, we're going to have to deal with it, um, certainly regardless, but we have to start to slow the progression. Um, Otherwise, we really do jeopardize losing these incredible treasures. So that's my hope. And it's, it's, a, it's a large ask, but we can do it. I mean, and we can, the public is concerned more than ever about these things. And so, and climate, the environment, our national parks are at the top um, of the list when people talk about what they're most concerned about. So so together we can we can do it and we just need to continue to uh, work with our legislators that will work with us and those that not continue to really share um, with the public what's happening and get them to help us.
1: Okay, that's Teresa Pirno, the President and CEO of the National Parks Conservation Association. Uh, she joined us today to look back on the National Park System and the National Park Service in 2019. Teresa, thanks so much for joining us. It's, it's been a, a wonderful conversation. Um, some of it's partly alarming, of course, but um, we're moving into a new year, and, and hopefully um, it'll, it'll be a, a more um, beneficial year for the parks.
2: Well, thank you, Kurt. Thank you for what you do. We really appreciate it.
1: That's our 46th and last podcast episode for 2019. It's really been quite a year, with more than 50,000 downloads of the shows. We hope you enjoyed them and look forward to new episodes each week. Next week, we'll look at winter destinations in the parks, both cold weather and warm. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
0: This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Traveler's podcast. Visit them at OrangetreeProductions.com National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas.